We're back in the book of Philippians today. In the month of October, uh, we went together through the first 11 verses in, in the book of Philippians, which was uh, very, I mean, it was enriching for me, if nothing else. Hopefully you got something out of it also. Uh, but through the first 11 verses of this letter, what we saw was this exemplary, this amazing love and concern that Paul has for the church at Philippi. But in addition to that, there is also an understanding throughout this letter, when, when you read it all together in one reading, that the church in Philippi has a great amount of love and concern for the Apostle Paul also. Paul speaks directly about this. Um, if you want to actually flip there, you can see it in, the, in Philippians 4 at the end of, at the, end of the letter. He observes how concerned they are for him in chapter 4. And then if you look at verses 14 through 16, he actually reveals the depth of their concerns that he understands they have for him. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So, they love and they care for Paul. We, we just see that there. And that means that they long to be a part of his ministry and to help him accomplish his ministry. We can see this further from, from the way he talks about the, the church in Philippi or the churches in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8. I think we read that passage once, but let me read it for you again real quick. In 8, 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5, Paul says to the Corinthian church, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given us among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the church in Philippi, they see themselves as intimately involved in Paul's ministry. And you see that in the language in, in that passage from 2 Corinthians 8. They want to make sure that Paul does not face a single hardship on his own, but that they are bearing as much of that burden as they can. And, and even from a distance, as much as they can, they want to be a part of it. And because, so because of that connection, then they almost certainly know of Paul's desire to be in Rome, that he wanted to get to Rome. And that happens to be where he is as he's writing this letter. And they know of the ministry that he desires to have in Rome. Actually, if you flip, flip back to Romans 1, and just look at Romans 1 for a moment, and you can see this. If you look at the, the first chapter of Romans, verses 11 through 15, you see just how much Paul wants to be with those members of the Roman church and what he intends to do when he's there. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." 
I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul has this desire, this desire to be ministering the gospel to, to the believers and the unbelievers in Rome. That, that is in him. That's the desire that he has. And the Philippian church has the desire to be a part of making this happen. The last time uh, they were with him, they, they probably knew of this eagerness. So imagine the opportunity for discouragement that must come to them when they discover that he has finally made it there, the very place he was eager to preach the gospel, but he is a prisoner. So, to help us think through this, coming off the heels of our symposium on missions that we just had, just imagine if we had one of the greatest, most gifted, elder-qualified men that we could imagine. I mean, mighty in Scripture, bold in his proclamation. He's so theologically sound that he's writing books that are, that are being published and that other churches are, are using. And we as a church uh, come together and we raise every dollar that we can and, and everything that we can spare and then so much that is a, that is a sacrifice to us to send him and to support him as he went to another country to strengthen the church there and to powerfully proclaim the gospel there. I mean, we have some sort of big sending off service. There's tears that are shed because he's been so instrumental to our church. But even though it's sad, we, we realize that this is a good thing, that this is the right thing to do, that this is going to bring glory to God and strengthen his kingdom. And then, upon arriving there, we hear back this news from him and find out that he is there, but he has been taken, he has become a prisoner. And now he's confined and he's unable to move around freely. And we can see how, couldn't we? We can see how that would become incredibly discouraging. We might immediately start doubting whether or not we should have ever sent him in the first place. We might start having second thoughts about everything we sacrificed to get him there. We would think about what, what a waste it is to have someone that is that gifted, that, that is that good as a teacher, that, that, to have the brightest and the best just rotting away in prison. We would be second-guessing. What, what could we have spent that money on instead? Wouldn't it be better if he was here ministering to us and if we had that money back? Not, not only would it cause doubts about the decisions by the church, but it would possibly also cause us to have doubts about the plan of God, or at least how we perceived it. Those questions that we we're tempted to ask during any type of trial, I mean, did, we, did we do something wrong here? Is God punishing us? Did we make some sort of mistake in our thinking? Were we not reading the Scripture right? We, was, he, was He wanting us to do something else and we, and we missed a sign or something? This would be similar to what the church in Philippi might be thinking when they hear that Paul is now a prisoner in the very place that he longed to go and preach the gospel. And that is why what Paul says in these verses that we are looking at today would be so shocking for them. So look at verses 12 through 14 in Philippians 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, the first time they were hearing this letter from the, the Apostle Paul, as they're hearing it read to them, this apostle that they love so much, they would have heard those first 11 verses with, with joy and with gladness and, and kind of with expectation. And that, that's kind of what they expected. The, the sweet way in which Paul expressed just how much he still loved and cared for them. How much he treasured them in his heart and how much he prayed for them. They would, they would have no doubt had that kind of emotional reaction that we get anytime we hear loving words from someone who we, who we care about who we haven't been able to see in a while or we're unable to interact with for some reason. But as he finishes those first 11 verses, that extended greeting, and he moves into the, the main body of the letter, which is what is happening in verse 12, they would be surprised by what he has to say to them first. Because he has, he's confirmed their fears. Yes, he is in fact a prisoner. But his position as a prisoner has actually served to do the exact thing that he was passionate to do to advance the gospel in Rome. So that is what we're going to see today. As our, as our church continues to grow, our church, Grace Church, continues to grow in our understanding that our purpose, our reason for, for existence, the reason why God leaves us on earth after He saves us, and He doesn't take us straight to Him, the reason is so that we would live lives committed to evangelism and to discipleship. So as we have now come to this understanding, this has been kind of been the, the lifeblood of our church for, the, for quite a while now, thinking through these things. And as we've come to this understanding about our purpose as a church, today we are going to see from this passage that the circumstances that we find ourselves in are essential for defining and serving this purpose of evangelism and discipleship. Whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in, they mean nothing when it comes to our actual responsibility to evangelize and disciple. That is our mandate no matter what. But the circumstances that we find ourselves in, in this life, whatever they are, are nothing more than God's determined context in which we are to faithfully evangelize and disciple. They're the tools that God has given us for maximum effectiveness in our mission. We cannot look at our circumstances and determine how fruitful of a ministry we can have. That's not something that we can do. We are, we are simply to be faithful and then watch God work and trust that the sovereign God who has given us this task has, given, or has, has also placed us where He wants us for that task. And, and He only brings into our lives that which will help us on that mission. Those things that we might think of only in terms of trials make us more productive in evangelism and discipleship. More productive in our purpose. When we are faithful through trials, we will be even more effective in that which we have been created to do. And Paul realized 
What he was going to say in these verses would be surprising to his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And that's, that's evident from the, from the wording of verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, and it does actually say that, that the Greek conjunctive particle, de, uh, that's, the, that's the word, that, that is there in the first verse. The ESV leaves it untranslated. Um, but, but you will see in most other translations that this verse begins with now or but or some word like that uh, to, to communicate that this, this word is there. The, the idea is that Paul is telling them of something in which he is, in which he is shifting his thought in another direction from, from what he was just talking about or, or from what they might already be thinking. He's shifting, he's trying to shift their thought from what they might already be thinking. Kind of like, uh, like you would when you're about to tell someone something that, that you know will shock them or something that they're not expecting. Like, now, I want you to know. And you say it like that. You, you, can just, you can just see by the language in that entire verse that he's saying that, that something surprising is happening. Something different than that which was expected. He's saying, actually, my circumstances, my imprisonment, is having the exact opposite effect as you might have thought. Exact opposite effect. He's saying, actually, they're, ha- they're having a positive effect. That, that's what the, the Greek word Milan that, that's translated there is really. Um, it indicates that something unexpected is taking place. And, and there's, mo- there's actually more of a nuance to that word than just translating it as really. Uh, but there's this aspect of comparison to that word. And so it really doesn't quite capture the sense that Paul is expressing here. It's something more akin to saying, but more rather, or, or even, but even more to a higher degree than was thought of. So, so what Paul is actually saying is that, that these dire circumstances are actually turning out to advance the gospel in an even greater way than had I not been in the circumstances. It's like he's saying, this imprisonment has been far better for my ministry here in Rome than had I been freely proclaiming the gospel and meeting with the church like I had planned. Or, or there's more fruit because of my imprisonment than there would have been otherwise. So, so that's what we see Paul saying here in verse 12, that the gospel is advancing and his ministry is even more fruitful than if, than if he were not in prison. And, and verses 13 and 14 are, are the supporting statements for this truth. And so it's those, first two, it's those two verses that, that, that give us our two points for the sermon today. Number one, God designs the circumstances to maximize the fruit of evangelism. And number two, God designs circumstances to maximize the fruit of discipleship. And the reason this is so... The reason that these things are true is because God is in control over our circumstances. If He has placed you in this world to do good works, to do the good works of sharing the gospel with unbelievers and building up believers through the implications of the gospel, and He is sovereign and in control over all things, then we can know for certain that He has us in the place where He wants us and He has us going through whatever trials He has for us in in order to accomplish these two things through us. 
So, first point, God designed circumstances to maximize the fruit of evangelism. And we're going to spend quite a bit more time on this point than the second point, just so you know. But this is what we see Paul saying there in verse 13. That's why he says it the way he does. Immediately after he makes the claim that he does in verse 12, what is going on with his imprisonment is causing the gospel to advance even more than if he was not imprisoned. He backs it up by saying, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So as, so as evidence for the fact that the gospel is advancing in an even greater way than, than he had hoped for, Paul points to these two groups of people, the whole uh, imperial guard or the whole praetorian, depending on your translation, and, and that group, and then the group that's kind of classified as all the rest. He says that all of them now know that his imprisonment is for Christ. It's for Christ. The language actually says uh, the whole praetorian. Uh, that, that's, that is what it says, which could refer to a building in Rome. It could refer to that. Um, but, but most commentators agree that this is in reference to the collective group of soldiers uh, here referred to. That's why the ESV translated, translates it as the imperial guard. And that makes the most sense in light of the fact that this group is mentioned alongside that other group of all the rest. That Paul has two groups of people in mind. It wouldn't make sense for it to be a building and a group of people. So, uh, the Imperial Guard then, we need to know who they are. This is an elite group of soldiers that are stationed in Rome as the Emperor's bodyguards. This was a group of special soldiers, hand-picked soldiers, originally formed by Caesar Augustus in 27 B.C. Uh, at, at that time, it was made, of, made up of nine cohorts of the best soldiers. So, a cohort's about uh, 600 men. It's about a tenth of a legion. But by the time of Paul's imprisonment in Philippi, the number of soldiers who made up the imperial guard may have been as high as 10,000. And Paul is now saying that his imprisonment has allowed the whole imperial guard to know that he is a prisoner for the sake of Christ. This is something that would not have happened and may have been impossible were he not a prisoner to reach that group. To be able to reach such an elite group would be difficult for anyone who's not on the inside. And now Paul is on the inside. So he says that the whole imperial guard and all the rest have come to know this about him. So Paul's not actually saying that every single person in Rome has come to know this, but it's, it's, it's more of a general statement in regard to in, in anyone else who, is, who kinda has, he's come in contact with and who knows about his situation, they've come to this knowledge also. But notice, as this is interesting, notice that Paul doesn't actually say that he has been able to share the gospel with all of them. Rather, he says that they all know that his imprisonment is for Christ. Or as some translations put it, for the cause of Christ. But just... Just hearing that people are coming to this understanding that, oh, he's in prison for the cause of Christ, that, that actually doesn't sound like that would help to advance the gospel. And telling people that being a devoted follower of Jesus Christ might cause you to end up in chains like it did the Apostle Paul, 
That doesn't seem like a great evangelism strategy. But Paul says that people becoming certain that the reason that he is in jail, that he is a prisoner, is for the cause of Christ, actually causes the gospel to advance in a better way than if he were to freely proclaim the gospel on the streets of Rome like he had initially intended. And so the reason this is so is because not only do they hear Paul preach the gospel, but they also see the effects of a life that has been transformed by the gospel. They get both of those things. And that's evident and obvious because of the nature of Paul's imprisonment in Rome. In Rome, Rome, Paul wasn't being held in a jail cell, which is the way we typically think of imprisonment. The word that is translated as imprisonment here means, literally means bonds or chains. In Ephesians, Paul, another prison epistle, Ephesians, Paul refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. Paul was a prisoner of Rome, but this was a dip, different type of imprisonment than we commonly think of. Prisoners who were sent to Rome in appeals cases, as Paul was, if you, if you look at the end of Acts, you'll see that's why Paul is in, as a prisoner in Rome, because, of, because he's appealed to Caesar. These types of prisoners were entrusted, to the clo- were entrusted to the close watch of the imperial guard. And the way this was carried out was by chaining a member of the guard to Paul at all times so that he would always be under the watchful eye of the Roman government at all points in time. This is what his imprisonment looked like. Different Roman soldiers, different members of the Imperial Guard took four-hour shifts being chained to Paul with a chain that was probably only about 18 inches long. That was Paul's life all the time. Zero privacy. So not only was Paul certainly preaching the gospel to these men, but they were right next to him all the time, only 18 inches away. That means they had to listen to the conversations that he was having with anyone who came to visit. They were hearing his instructions to those he was discipling. They were hearing him sing hymns. They listened to him dictate his letters. They they heard his prayers. They watched him seek forgiveness when he sinned. They heard and saw in him gospel realities in all of his life. And they watched him remain joyful throughout these circumstances. They were able to see that this man really believes what he's saying. When an unbeliever hears the gospel from from us, it's fairly easy for them to dismiss it. Even if it maybe starts to make sense to them at the time, even if they can't really argue with it. Once you're gone, once they go away, They can easily retreat back into all of their excuses and all of the reasons why believing that stuff would be foolish to them. They can start to think that, yeah, that guy who shared that with me probably probably struggles with the same secret sin that I struggle with. No one can really live without some of these certain sinful things and actually be happy. But as an unbeliever, when you are forced to sit next to the result of gospel transformation... 
When that man, when you see that that man is handling his poverty and his difficult physical circumstances with more joy, more delight, more purpose than you're handling your life, and when you can't deny the transformation because you're chained to it, it gets much more difficult to make those excuses. And so you can imagine the conversations that these imperial guards are having with each other as they're changing shifts and stuff. And like, let, let me know. if he, I, We need to catch him in something. He's got to do something that, that messes this up. They, so they, as, as they're going through these shifts, they're having these conversations with each other and it's getting past. This, there's something different about this prisoner. And so, and so Paul specifically singles out the fact that the advancement of the gospel is because people have come to know that the reason that Paul is in the state that he is in, a prisoner, is only because he is a follower of Christ. That, that is what is causing them to have to take the gospel more seriously. Because the longer they are with him, the, long, the more they see him, the more his character becomes evident to them, and it is clear that there is no way a man like this would be a prisoner if he would just shut his mouth and stop talking about Jesus. If he would have just kept his faith private and not felt the need to tell everyone, he'd be fine. Kind of, kind of like the way that this culture is constantly telling us. Like that's their accommodation. How we should practice our faith. That's that's fine. You can, you can believe whatever you want as long, as long as it remains your private practice. That thing that you, that you need, that comforts you, that helps you get by, that's fine. You can have that. Whatever works for you. Just as long as it's not interfering with anyone else. Just as long as it's not making anyone else feel uncomfortable. You can go ahead and believe whatever you want. And if Paul would just drop this whole thing, It would be so much easier for him to gain his freedom and get back to his normal life. So in short, they they could not deny the reality that Paul really had died to this life and that he really did see himself as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. And he no longer gets to prioritize in, in the slightest anything that he would like to do or any of his dreams or anything that would make his life easier. So there's, there's a few huge implications that we can draw from this reality, from what we see here in Paul. Uh, there's some points of application to ch- challenge us. The first one being, if someone were chained to you all day, as they are forced to watch the way you live, would they see something that verifies the gospel that you proclaim to them? Would they see something else? If they watched how, they, how you spent your day, if they watched how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, if they watched how you treat your neighbors, if they watched how you treat the guy who cuts you off in traffic, if they watched how or if you study your Bible, if they heard your prayers, they saw how you used your time, what you prioritized. They listened to how you talk about other people. They saw how you responded to the sin of others. They saw how, they, how, how you responded to your own sin. 
would you be able to say, like Paul, this is, this is better. This is so much better. This is so much better than if they were only hearing my evangelistic presentation. The, the gospel is now advancing in a much greater way than if they only heard me speak this message and didn't actually get to see how it has completely transformed me. This is better. So, maybe that's not the case for some of us. Maybe the lack of persecution in our culture and the relative ease that we have as Christians in this culture, maybe that's caused us to begin to, to fall into the trap of not living our lives like we depend on God. Maybe the unbelievable amount of distractions that this world offers us has caused us to start to love this world. Something we are warned against. We become callous to that which is truly satisfying, which is knowing God and living for Him. So that's one implication. Another implication that we could take from this verse is could it be that, that one of the reasons we are not as bold in our evangelism is because we think exactly the opposite about this? We, we really don't want anyone to look close into our lives because we are so desperate to keep people from seeing our failures. Try, trying to convince people that we have it all together more than we do. That's important to us. For, for people to see that about us. To think that about us. We cannot be like that. If, if we're truly Christians, of course, of course the more people get to know you, the more they're going to see you sin. Yeah, that obviously. You don't have it all together. Ask your spouse. You don't have it all together. But this, this is also the only way that they will ever see how a real Christian responds to their sin. It should be by repenting and by seeking forgiveness. If you have truly been born again, if you've truly been made regenerate by God through Christ, if you've been given a new nature that longs to please God and live for Him, one that hates sin and, and seeks to, to rid yourself of it, then you will be different. You will be different. If you are truly in Christ, you can rest assured that if you were chained to an unbeliever, if someone who's really in Christ is chained to someone who is really an unbeliever and, and you're forced to witness each other's lives, there will be something unexplainable about your life to that person. So don't be afraid. Even, even if that unbelieving neighbor saw you lose your temper on one of your kids one day over the fence and, and, and you, haven't, you have yet to pin him down with a specific thing yet, so he's got a one-up on you, don't, don't think like that. Time and truth go hand in hand. The more you are around each other, the more evident it will become. And if you do actually discover that you are no different than an unbeliever when it comes to a lack of joy or a love for the world and living for yourself, then that means there's a much bigger reason why the Gospel is not advancing through you. It's because you have yet to fully understand how truly disgusting your sin is. How truly abhorrent your rebellion against God is. That rebellion before a perfect and holy God. And therefore, you have not actually put your trust in the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God because you don't see, really, you don't see how much you need it. 
You haven't put your trust in that sacrifice for your sins, for the wrath of God that was justly due towards your sins to be put on Christ on the cross. That has not happened for you. Because how could someone actually believe this? How could someone actually believe that and then live a sadder, more selfish life than someone who rejects that gospel? Of course they cannot. So a third implication I have for you from this verse comes when you understand that since the mission and the joy of the Apostle Paul is to preach and advance the gospel, he understands his imprisonment in a fundamentally different way than we tend to think of things like this. Most of us in Paul's position would use it as an excuse about why we can't do as much right now or, or, or we can't do something as well as we would like to. We see things like that as a hindrance, as something that's holding us back, something that, that maybe, maybe once we overcome it, maybe once God helps us through it, Maybe then we'll be freed up to, to really get down to, to, to serving God the way we know we're supposed to. Once, once we come out of that. Just waiting for, for that kind of trial to pass. But Paul's not looking at this as an obstacle. As some situation that he's got to get through. And while most of us in this same situation would see the chain as keeping us from something, Paul sees it as a ministry that God is keeping for him. While we might only think, think in terms of, there is nothing I can do to get out of this situation. I'm, I'm stuck. There isn't anything I can do. I can't get away from this soldier. Paul is seeing it as, there is nothing this soldier can do to get away from me. He is thinking, huh, I long to be used by God to preach the gospel in Rome. That's been my dream. That's what I've wanted to do, my dream. And now, not only am I in Rome, but the government who has arrested me because I preached the gospel has now taken someone whom I would have never been able to preach the gospel to. They've taken that person. And this very government that hates that I preach the gospel has taken someone who I long to preach the gospel to, and they've chained them to me for four hours. And, and after that four hours, they're going to take another man whom I long to preach the gospel to, and they're going to chain him to me for four hours. And they're just going to keep doing this. And Paul is glorying in this, that the sovereign God whom he serves is using the very government that hates the declaration, Jesus is Lord, and they are chaining an endless succession of elite Roman citizens to him so that he can explain to them that Jesus is Lord. And Paul doesn't see himself as a prisoner chained to a Roman guard. He sees it, he sees it as a prisoner of the kingdom of darkness has been chained to an ambassador of the king of kings. The, the amazing truth of what is actually happening. What we see actually going on, Paul, Paul actually references quickly at the end of his book. Look, look, look at all the way at the second to last verse of Philippians. When, when Paul's giving his final greetings, look what he says. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. 
This is amazing because who is Paul technically a prisoner of? Caesar. He is technically a prisoner of Caesar. Yet as, as Caesar's prisoner, Paul still sees his primary identity as a slave of Christ. Even as Caesar's prisoner, Paul sees his primary identity as a slave of Christ. And as Christ's slave within Caesar's household, he is working to set those who are true captives free. Paul sees far beyond these earthly circumstances that would cause so many of us to think of ourselves as trapped, waiting for God to do something so we can can get back to work, so we can really do some ministry. So, what is it that makes you feel trapped or imprisoned? Maybe, Maybe it's a job that you don't like that much and you're praying for God to get you a new job. Maybe you don't have the job that you want or you're looking for a job. You feel trapped in unemployment. Maybe you want God to, you just, you just want Him to take you somewhere else. Somewhere that you can feel like you, you can do, do real ministry. You, you feel like at this moment in time, you've got this kind of understanding that I'm, right now I'm in a wait and see kind of period. I'm in that holding period, that holding pattern, just kind of waiting for the next thing. But guess what? There are no holding patterns in the Christian life. There are none. Just waiting for the next thing isn't a thing. All, all we have is a constant succession of endless divine appointments until God calls us home. That's our life. So what unsuspecting unbelievers has God trapped in that place with you? One of His people. He didn't put you there. He didn't place you there as a, as a spy so you could blend in and get some information about what the enemy is up to. And, and we laugh at that, but, but so many Christians act like, that's what they act like at work. They go there. They hear all the godless policies that are made. All the policies that are caving to the LGBTQ agenda. That are, that are caving to the liberal agenda. And then, and then they come back to church and, and then we talk to each other like we just got back from separate spy missions. And we're getting ready, uh, we're getting ready to go back undercover on Monday. I mean, and the only people we tell about these issues is each other. God doesn't need spies. There's no secret information on the enemy that God needs from you. We are to be lights in darkness. And God has placed you, and maybe only you, as the representative to all of those lost people about what a Christian believes and what a Christian looks like. Maybe it's a family situation that you feel trapped by. Uncomfortable family situation, you have unbelieving family and you just deal with the get-together. You know, you, you put your head down. You wait for it to get over with so that you can go back to what you're supposed to be doing. Are you trapped there with them? Is that what's going on? Or do you understand yourself to be a representative of Almighty God in their midst? One who possesses the gospel of life. The greatest news imaginable. 
the greatest news imaginable, but, but also the most hated and rebelled against news. Hated and rebelled against by those who are trapped in darkness. Are you trapped with them? Or are they chained to you? The messenger. Maybe, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. You feel trapped by the same little unregenerate heathens whom you have to tell. You have to tell them the same news about the law and gospel every single day. You feel trapped repeating the same things every day. And no matter how many times you've told them, when you tell them tomorrow, they're going to act like you've just revealed some hidden information from before the foundation of the earth. And this has been your life for years and it feels like Groundhog Day. Like nothing different is going to happen. Like you haven't made an ounce of difference. And you're tempted to start thinking of yourself as, as tethered to them. Like there's real ministry out there. And I'm trapped. Like you're in a type of prison. Is that how you see it? You tempted to see it? Or can you see it from the perspective of one who belongs to a sovereign God? And, and you understand that in an act of grace and mercy, He has trapped those adorable, selfish little reprobates with you. He's trapped them, those ones who need to hear the gospel and see the gospel, He's trapped them with you, one of His children, one of His ambassadors, one who can teach and model His Word to them on a daily basis, and one who, in coming to faith in Him, confessed that they had died to themselves, and you've been raised to live a new life for Him and serve Him in whichever way He chooses. So if we can change our mindset on this to where we never see ourselves as, as victims of our circumstances, but we always see ourselves as in, in, in the exact place that God wants us for His purposes. This is where I am. This is where He wants me. It will be life-changing and joy-inducing. And it when you think about it, it really is the only way that any of us who claim to believe the things that we say we believe about God, it's the only way that we can actually live with any real integrity. I've seen this so clearly. They're not going to like me using them as an example, but I've seen this so clearly in my parents throughout my entire life when it comes especially to stays in the hospital. As I think back throughout my entire life, I cannot think of one time when either of my parents has had to be in the hospital for any significant amount of time where they haven't called me and told me about at least one person that they were talking to, a nurse or someone or fellow patient who they were sharing the gospel with and asking me to pray for them. That's a great testimony. The, the hospital is the place that you are most likely to be tempted to make everything about you. It's quite easy because that's what everyone around you is doing. You're the one who is sick. You're the one who everyone's checking on. You're the one everyone is visiting. You're the one who possibly has some very, something very seriously wrong with you, maybe even potentially life-threatening. And to be able to go into that situation 
recognizing that the only people that God is going to bring into that room with you are those whom He has sovereignly planned to be in the presence of one of His children, one of His servants. And to treat each person that comes in there that way, that that is how we are to be. And again, if we believe what we say we believe about who God is and what He has done, it doesn't really make sense to think of it any differently than that, does it? Second point. Again, much shorter point. Second point. God designed circumstances to maximize the fruit of discipleship. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here we see that not only has Paul's evangelistic witness been strengthened by his imprisonment, but so too his purpose in discipleship. Now the believers in Rome have become more confident in the Lord and they have become more bold in their gospel witness because they see Paul imprisoned. They see Paul chained up to a Roman soldier. And this is fantastic for Paul because remember what he said back in Romans 1, verses 11 and 12. He said, For I long to see you, this is to the Roman church, I long to see you, Romans, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That's what Paul wanted to see in the, in the people in Rome, in the church in Rome. Paul's whole goal for his visit to Rome was to strengthen them, to be able to encourage one another with their faith. And now, because Paul is visiting them, but in chains, he is actually able to strengthen them to a greater degree than he would have been able to otherwise. So, first we see that through his imprisonment, the church in Rome is gaining confidence in the Lord. They're gaining confidence in the Lord. It's not just that they're gaining confidence. Some translations kind of weaken this point a little bit by attaching the phrase in the Lord to brothers. So it says brothers in the Lord. But that's not what Paul meant. That would be repetitive. Brother, if you're a brother, it's for, taken for granted that you're in the Lord. Um, it makes the most sense to attach the phrase in the Lord um, to the confidence that they have. Paul is saying that because of these bonds, because of my imprisonment, the church here now has a greater trust in God. They trust God in a greater way, which is exactly what I, was, what I wanted to help them with in the first place. When we read about Paul's desire for the Roman Christians in the book of Romans, we can rightly trust that this is how Paul was praying, that he was asking God to bring him to Rome so that he could strengthen the brothers there. That's what he wanted to do. And now Paul is understanding here as he writes this letter to the Philippians that his imprisonment in Rome is God answering his prayer in an even greater degree than he could have previously imagined. This is true because nothing encourages us like witnessing a fellow Christian suffering for Christ well. Have, Have you considered the fact Have you considered the fact that your suffering is one of the greatest possible tools you could be given when it comes to your responsibility to disciple? 
when you consider that the main thing that you are doing in discipleship is inviting someone to watch how you live. It's not really about you teaching and imparting knowledge. That is part of it. But really, discipling is teaching the truths of Scripture to them and then inviting them to watch you so that they can see what that looks like lived out. And the time that that you help others around you most is by suffering like a Christian. Yesterday at STM, we asked some questions of the elders, um, some of the, the, the men who have been here the longest, specifically about some of the most challenging things that have taken place in the history of this church and in their lives. And those of us men who were there, we were able to be encouraged as we listened and we heard stories and we learned of their boldness and their resolve and the resolve of other people in this church to do what was right instead of what was easy, even when it prolonged the hardship, even when it prolonged the suffering, even when not only did it not put the trials away, but it added more trials. Even though during those times, I am certain they were praying for an end to the trials. God was doing through them the very thing that they desired the most. He was strengthening His people. Strengthening His people. If you really desire to to, to disciple those around you, the younger Christians in your life, maybe your children, you need to realize that God must frustrate the plans in your life for this to happen. He has to take you through places that you would rather not go. Because that is the very best way for those whom you are trying to strengthen for them to grow. They need to see how a godly person reacts when things don't go according to plan. They need to see that depending on God is worth it and that He always comes through. They need to watch a person who has given their life to Christ They need to watch that person accept suffering for their own good and for His glory as a gift from Him. They need to see it. And when that happens, then we will also see the second effect that Paul mentions. They become more bold to speak the Word without fear. As you see, the transformational power of God manifests in someone's life to the extent that their trials do nothing but make it clear that it is nothing but the power of God that explains that guy's life. That's the only thing that explains it. Then it can't help but make you more zealous to proclaim that faith, that power. When you can point to the life of someone who remains joyful and faithful in trials, And then you look at your own life and you see less faith, less joy, less obedience when when it really should be easier for you. That that causes something in you to be, this isn't how it should be. This is not how it ought to be. That person has something that I need. I I don't understand things like that person. I I need to talk to them more. And drives you to your knees and it causes you to ask God, make me like that. When you see the reality of the truth of the gospel lived out in that life, 
you are reminded once again why this message, why this gospel message is the desperate need of all people, whether they know it or not. Because that's how life is supposed to look. That is how we should be living. That is the desperate need of all people. You will be more encouraged to share it, even if it means more suffering for yourself. And also now, suddenly, that suffering doesn't seem to be near as big of a deal as you've watched someone else endure, as you've watched someone else walk through something harder than you. Because you, you have that example in front of you. And you can see the promise of God. You can see it lived out before you that He will never leave us or forsake us. And that when we appear weak, then He is strong. When we are most exposed as the fragile clay pots that we are, that causes the treasure inside of us to look that much more spectacular to those around us is a good thing. So, my brothers and sisters at Grace Church, we have been growing in our understanding of our responsibility as faithful followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we are here on this earth to evangelize and disciple. That's why we're here. And we need to understand and believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the circumstances that God has placed in our lives at this moment, that the things that we, are, that we sometimes feel chained to or imprisoned by, that we sometimes think we need freed from, these are the very things that define for you exactly where and who your ministry is to center around right now. And those things that are such a struggle, such a, the, the trials, the, the suffering that we so often pray to be free of, these are the very things that God has given us as powerful tools in the ministry that He has called us to. And our, our response must be to trust the good purposes of our sovereign God. Be faithful children, slaves, and soldiers of our Lord and Master. We're about to sing a song about being soldiers. And, and just remembering the fact that not only are we soldiers, but we serve the God who chose our battlefield. He knows exactly where we are, where everything is, and He's placed us perfectly. Father, thank You so much. Thank You so much for Your Word. We just need a word like this. Because man would never come to these kind of thoughts this kind of understanding on our own. Father, I pray for a grace church that You would make us a people who have an unswerving trust in You and Your plans. That our, our belief in the sovereignty of God that we sing about and we proclaim so much that we would prove that we really believe that by the way we go about our lives, by the way we interpret the circumstances that we see in our lives. Make us to be faithful and obedient, 
disciplers, evangelizers, and help us each to spur each other on in this task. In Jesus' name, amen. Please.